Welcome to the Juno Report, brought to you by Guide Dog Users Incorporated, a special interest affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. The Juno Report is a monthly audio magazine featuring all things guide dogs, training programs, and items of general interest to guide dog teams. We welcome your feedback, ideas, and suggestions. Get in touch with the Juno Report by emailing junoreport at guidedogusersinc.org. Again, that email address is Juno, J-U-N-O, report at guidedogusersinc.org. I love my dog, baby. And now, let's get on with today's program of the Juno Report. And hello, everyone. Welcome to the October Juno Report. It's still September where I am, so I'm having trouble coming up with the idea that this is the October Report. But that's because October 1st is the day that uh, Juno comes around this time. So here we go. And thanks for joining us again this month. We have one more program from the Summer Convention of Guide Dog Users Incorporated at the ACB National Convention, which was a virtual convention this year. It's great having a virtual convention because you can have just about anybody you want. And we're going to be trying to prove that soon here on the Juno Report because uh, we're going to be reaching out around the world for some special interviews that I hope will cooperate. So I can't tell you who they are because they're not committed yet and we'll be in trouble if I can't deliver, right? All right, that's great. Well, uh, before we play this um, item that we have for us, which is really, really a fun episode, um, I just wanted to comment, as so many have, on the passing of Charlie Crawford, our board member and uh, supporter of GDUI for many, many years. And uh, Charlie passed away this last month. There were so many memorials to him. Um, the um, Tuesday Topics show, the Sunday Edition show, um, Charlie would have said, oh, the days of the week. And uh, Guide Dog Users had an event last weekend, and of course there was the memorial service, and uh, there were just so many um, tributes to Charlie. So we're not going to do another tribute to Charlie here because, you know, he would probably say by now, enough is enough. But we just want to let everybody know that those tributes are out there in podcast form. And if you've not had a chance to take advantage of hearing about the wonderful person Charlie was, uh, you should, because he really has been uh, the most celebrated person in dogdom in a long time. So I, I just uh, wanted to mention that and to also send my condolences to his wife, Sue, and to his family. Now, we do have a uh, special program today from our summer convention. Uh, this is um, Lucas Frank from uh, The Seeing Eye, and he's going to be talking about one of my favorite topics, which is the clicker. Now, we've edited this as we always do. So if you asked a question in that program and you're hearing it now and you don't hear you, it's not personal. We ran out of time, but we tried to keep the questions that were the most relevant to clicker training. And certainly all of um, Lucas's wonderful presentation. So here he is, um, Lucas Frank. It's really odd to be here and nice to be here. I'm glad, you know, I, 
I was saying the other, I have not been home for the 4th of July weekend for 20 years or more. So, and I didn't know what to do with myself. So thank you so much for helping me feel at home, even though I am at home. Because of the way this is set up, I don't know what your expertise is. Uh, if, you, if your dogs were uh, from schools that do a lot of clicker training, whether if your dogs are from schools that don't do any clicker training, or like the seeing eye, we use clicker training uh, in certain ways, and we use it in ways that other schools don't. Uh, so there's a, great, there's a great range out there in terms of, of, of what people know and what they're used to doing. Uh, if the audience is typical, there will be some people who think that clicker training is the best thing since sliced bread. And there will be another subset of you who think that all this clicker stuff is nonsense. Why can't I just praise my dog? Um, and everything in between. So one of the things that I do for the seeing eye, we, what we do is we have two lectures on clicker training as well as practice sessions, of course. But the, the first lecture on clicker training is for everyone and it's very general. Uh, but in our system, although the dogs are all exposed to the clicker and trained to the clicker and certain with the clicker in certain aspects of the training, including targeting and country work, um, the the second lecture is optional because if people do not wish to participate in the clicker training program, they don't have to. The dogs don't have the option. They all know the clicker, but people have the option of learning it or not. So, um, so what we do in that second lecture is review our processes so that to be sure that all of the students in the class are on the same page. Uh, and then we just go into a little bit of theory. And I thought what I would begin with, and I want to be able to leave a lot of time for questions and answers, and I will probably duck some questions that are school specific because I don't want to get the world pissed off at me, uh, is talk to you a little bit about the, the history of, of clicker training and then take a look at some, some aspects of, of <clears throat> practical use in, in, in certain elements of training. Um, you know, clicker training is relatively new, but there are elements of it that go back a long way. Right now, I'm reading a book or rereading a book, actually, written by a fellow named Conrad Most, M-O-S-T. You can look, look it up, uh, called uh, something like dog training. Uh, he was German, and uh, he uh, was a World War I veteran. And in his description of how he trained his dogs, and he was apparently very good, the front cover shows a German shepherd coming towards you with a revolver in its mouth that it has retrieved. Um, but <clears throat> he used what he called inducements. And inducements are, are often thought to be the same thing that modern behaviorists would call stimuli uh, and reinforcements. And... Uh, or reinforcements. So you know, this goes back at least to the interwar period. But what we think of in general as click, as clicker training and operant conditioning was really developed by a, a fellow named B.F. Skinner, as you as you, you no doubt know. Now Skinner was a psychologist, and he taught at Harvard. But he really began to develop clicker training when he taught at the University of Minnesota. And he had uh, a, a laboratory in uh, a set of 
silos that are, I think, on Hiawatha Avenue outside of Minneapolis, they still stand. Uh, and what he was doing there was he was experimenting with training pigeons. And the pigeons he was training were actually to be used. He was working on a project, I think, for, uh, for the United States Air Force, and they were trying to get pigeons to peck a photograph of a target that a, an airplane would drop a bomb on in Germany. So let's imagine there's a photograph of a factory and the airplane drops the bomb and the bomb looks like it's going to miss the target. Well, the plan was to have all these pigeons in the nose cone of this bomb and they would peck at pictures of the factory. And when they pecked, they would move the fins on the bomb so that the bomb would in effect be guided by the pigeons to land in the middle of that factory. It was the, the, the project was called Project Pelican. Uh, so this was in the early stages, this was actually before the war, but this is what this eventually grew up to, grew into. Uh, Project Pelican worked. They were able to train pigeons to, to do this. Uh, unfortunately, the pigeons usually died in the explosions, but uh, it was thought to be a small sacrifice. Uh, but eventually, of course, they developed the atomic bomb and that kind of accuracy was not quite as critical. Um, but what Skinner was doing in Minneapolis was he was training pigeons to peck a certain number of times, let's say five times, one, two, three, four, five. Uh, and <clears throat> what he had was he had a, a reservoir of food or a hopper of food. And when the pigeon pecked five times, he would hit a button and the, the hopper would release a piece of food that would roll out and the pigeon would be reinforced for that. Does that make sense? I hope. Uh, the problem he was having was that there was a delay between the time he pushed the button and the time the food rolled out. You can imagine that. And so what he would do, what he would, on four, he would push the button, hoping that the food would roll, roll out right on the count of five and the pigeon would peck and, and have it. And it didn't work. And what, didn't, what happened was when he pushed the button to release the food, the reservoir or the hopper made noise. It would go kathunk and then a piece of food would roll out. And the pigeons kept stopping when they heard the kathunk instead of going for when the food rolled out. And so he thought this was just awful. And then all of a sudden in, in a, a sort of a mo an aha moment of inspiration, he came to realize that he could use that reaction to the sound. So what he did was the pigeon kept pecking and on five, he hit the button. It would go kathunk, the pigeon would stop and look for the food and get the food. So the, the kathunk sound that resulted when he hit the button actually became what he called a conditioned reinforcer. A conditioned reinforcer. So the food was what he thought was going to be reinforcing. It turned out there was a conditioned reinforcer. The hard part about doing this type of talking is that my style of lecturing, as those of you who've had the misfortune to sit through one or two of them, is that I like to check in with people 
and say, make sure people have got it. And I haven't left somebody behind because for a moment they thought, you know, oh, I forgot to do X, Y, or Z and they forgot something, but I can't do that. So I'm just going to have to keep plowing ahead and hopefully can open it, open it up for questions a little bit later. So here's Skinner up there with his pigeons and he called it a conditioned reinforcer. Conditioned just means learned, simply enough. And a reinforcer is something that makes something happen more quickly, more often, uh, more strongly. Uh, so obviously that's what a reinforcer is. So a conditioned reinforcer is a learned reinforcer, which makes sense. Okay, the pigeon was actually working for the food, but he learned or she learned that that kathunk sound predicted the food. And so he would or she would stop when the kathunk happened. So Skinner called this a conditioned reinforcer and began to write about this, about this process. Um, from there, he had some graduate students. I'm just going to talk a little bit about the development of, of clicker training in this country. Um, so he had some graduate students. They were named uh, Marion and Keller Breland. And... I, I met Marion. Uh, she's gone now, but but Keller had died long before, and <clears throat> they were graduate students. The war came. They got, they got involved in Project Pelican, and then they 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 kind of quit grads. I think Keller got his doctorate. Marion did years later, but they went off and they started a company that was called Arkansas Behavior Enterprises, um, and they decided to try to monetize what Skinner was working on. And they did a great job of it. They trained animals for all kinds of things. Their basic bread and butter was in those days, and some of you may be old enough to remember this, in, at county fairs, you would have a, a sort of a, a booth. And in that booth, was, it was a glass enclosed booth. You could put in a quarter, or in those days, it was probably five cents. And what would happen is an animal would come out and do something and then run back into its hutch. What it would do depended on what it had been trained to do. For example, there was a game where if you put a, a nickel in, uh, a chicken would come out and stand at bat at a baseball, and like in a baseball stadium, hit, hit a ball, run around the bases, and then go back into its hole. There was another game where... Um, a duck would come out and start dancing on a, on a, on a turntable to rock and roll music. You know, um, there are all these little games that you could play. So you, that he would, they would train animals. They had kind of a conveyor belt and they would train all these animals and ship the animal and the container, the game set out to the, the county fairs and, and everything was great. And if your animal died at the county fair, you would, you know, call up the Brelands and by gosh, you know, the next day through, Federal Express or whatever they were using at that time, another bunny would arrive or another chicken that would arrive and you could put it right into your existing box and the pigeon knew exactly what to do or the rabbit or the chicken knew exactly what to do. Uh, so it was this entire marketing scheme. But they also did a lot of other work. They did work for the Army in Vietnam where they were, tra they were training pigeons to scout out in front of patrols uh, looking for ambushes and flying back if they found something that, that looked threatening. They even trained, and there's a movie on this that you can, you can still get uh, that was called Patient Like the Chipmunks. You can look that up and you can order that. Uh, it's, it's, it's very choppy footage that they, they rescued from a fire, as I recall. But they, they even trained uh, ravens 
to fly to the windows of office buildings where important meetings were taking place. And the CIA would use these ravens to sit, fly to this windowsill and photograph inside the meeting room of who the people were there. So you had this raven landing on the windowsill, taking a picture of what was going on in the room and flying back with its camera. They trained cats to sit perfectly still in the middle of an airport. Of course, it would be easy now. Nobody's in airports. But, um, and uh, they, were, they were remarkable trainers, and they used this approach all over, the, all over the place. They also met and worked with a fellow named Bob Bailey. And I met Bob as well. I'm fortunate enough to be able to say, although I never got to work with either Marion or, well, a little, little bit with Marion, but never got to work much with, with Marion or Bob. Um, they, uh, Bob Bailey, somehow, I think he was very surprised by it, ended up in charge of the Navy's Marine Mammal Program. And the Navy was training dolphins to do all kinds of stuff. And this was free swimming work where they would, they would mount a, a listening device, for example, on a dolphin and have it swim out to sea 10 miles and put the listening device underneath uh, uh, a Russian sh spy ship or something so they could figure out what was going on. Remarkable, remarkable work. And so Bob uh, learned how to do this type of training from probably Skinner himself, I'm not sure, but also from Marion and, and, uh, and Keller Breland. Keller died young. And Marion and uh, and Bob got married, uh, so they were they were a remarkable, remarkable, remarkable couple. Couple for years, Bob Bailey ran a chicken training camp uh, every year, so he would bring students in to teach them how to uh, train chickens. Because Bob Bailey's dictum was that training, clicker training at least, is a mechanical skill, and there's something to that. We'll get into that perhaps a little bit more later in questions. So. After marine mammal work, and, and, and at that point, somehow, uh, Karen Pryor, uh, whose name I think you probably know, was a dolphin trainer, uh, and I think she probably knew Bob Bailey exactly how that story happened. I, I don't remember anymore. Uh, Karen Pryor got involved in it, and Gary Wilkes. Uh, Gary, uh, I think, spoke at an ACB convention or a GDUI convention many years ago. Seems to me it was in Phoenix because that's where he lives, um, and uh, uh, and they began to move the the technology, if you want to call it that, into the dog world uh, in in the early nineties, um, and from there it came into uh, the guide dog world quite early. Uh, Michelle Pouliot, of course, took a lead role in that on, on the West Coast uh, uh, and, with G and, and was able to move GDB's training program in that direction. And I was in, started to get involved in about 95 uh, and, and went to my first workshop with, Bailey, with the Baileys and uh, Karen Pryor and Gary Wilkes and a bunch of other people in, uh, in Guelph, in Canada, in uh, 95 or 96. Um, so getting back to uh, sort of back again to the nuts and bolts, we've got Skinner there in, in Minneapolis with his button on the, uh, on the trigger of that hopper, and he called that a conditioned reinforcer. Let's get into the jargon a little bit. So 
Conditioned means learned. Reinforcer means something that uh, makes something happen more quickly or faster or stronger. Um, it's also sometimes called the clicker or the click is also sometimes called a secondary reinforcer. Now, if there's a secondary something, there must be a first or a primary of that thing. So what is a primary reinforcer? Well, by definition, a primary reinforcer is generally biological in nature. It is something that makes the animal feel better in some way. So things you can eat are obviously primary reinforcers. If the animal is thirsty, drinking is a, is a primary reinforcer, and there are several others. Um, praise is also a primary reinforcer. And, you know, I, one of the things that, that interests me is that we tend to think that food is the most powerful reinforcer, and it probably is in the short term for most dogs, although not for all. I was recently working with a hound cross, and dog didn't care a, a hoot about food. What it cared about was having a ball thrown so it could run after it and chase it and retrieve it and come back. So, you know, what, what the, what's re and that play, that energy, that fun, that's also a primary. Um, but there's some research recently, fairly recently, isn't it? A fellow by the name of Jeff Byrne at Emory University um, did some work and he was trying to what he did, and you may have heard about this, um, is he wanted, he was, he's a neurophysicist, and he wanted to know, he loved dogs, and he wanted, loved his dog, actually, and he wanted to know what was going on in the dog's mind. And so what he did was, I, if I lose power, I'm in the middle of a thunderstorm here, I apologize, but... Um, what he did was he trained his dog to lie. Have, many of you, I'm sure, have had MRIs. And they're not fun, are they? You're in that little that tube and these, these things are banging all over the place. It's scary. I've had one. Um, but what he did was he trained his dog to lie perfectly still inside an MRI tube, which is really quite a feat. He had a professional trainer advise him on how to do it. What was really cool was how he did it. And what's remarkable is he didn't get a divorce because what he did was he took, you know, if you were trying to pour concrete and make a concrete column, vertical column, you would have a big tube that you would stand on end filled with concrete. When the concrete dried, you could take away that cardboard tube and you'd have a column. Well, what he did is when he, got a, he got a cardboard tube and put it in his living room lying down so that it kind of looked like an MRI tube. And then he took his dog and trained his dog to lie perfectly still in the MRI tube. And he played MRI noises until the dog was really, really used to it. And then he took it to an MRI machine that he actually had access to because he was a, a neuro or nuclear uh, biologist, I think, or I don't forget his exact title. And he trained it. He was able to actually look at the dog's brain as he was presenting stimuli to it. And of course, and he did this with a lot of dogs, not just his own. And what he found was that the, although the dog's brain lit up when you presented a food stimulus to it at the end of the tube, it also lit up probably more if you showed, showed them its owner, 
And sometimes, if I recall correctly from the book, even a photograph of its owner. So what this says to me is that food is really important to dogs, but so are you. As the person, your praise has, and I'm not telling you anything you don't know, uh, has great, great value to your dog. And you don't want to minimize the value of your love and, and the reinforcing actions you take, the petting, the scratching, the talking uh, that you do with your dogs, critically important to the dog. In fact, there was a guy, and I bet a lot of you remember this study. The, uh, there was a study that was done way back in the 50s. I don't think you do it now, where a guy named Harlow took little baby monkeys and put them in, there were two separate cages and he put the baby monkeys, split them in half. I mean, not cut them in half. That'd be awful. But I mean, he said three on this side, three on the other side. And he put them in cages. One cage had a wire figure of a mother monkey that gave milk. And the other had a wire figure of a monkey, but it was covered in terry cloth and it also gave milk. And he just watched them for a week or whatever it was. And what he noticed, here comes the thunder. What he noticed was that the dog, the monkeys that were with the wire mother failed to thrive. They didn't have good weight. They didn't have, uh, they weren't active. They just clearly weren't happy and they weren't thriving as much as the ones in the terry cloth covered monkeys cage. Those, those monkeys were happier because they, had, they were cuddly. They could cuddle up with their mother and it felt better to them. So they were happier. So what this says to me is that monkeys are primates, of course, but we are all, as mammals, we need that affection and praise, as well as just food. So both monkeys had equal access to food, but we need something else. And although dogs aren't primates, they are mammals like we are, and they need that as well. So don't devalue your praise and reinforcement and affection because, uh, in thinking that you're doing just as well with food. You may be, but if you add praise to that, you're going to get even further. So getting back to it, so primary reinforcement is usually food or play or something like that or praise, okay? But so the clicker then is a secondary reinforcer. It's a learned, there's a learning component to it. Again, that the the dog learned that the clicker predicts that this praise or food or something is going to arrive in the same way that the kathunk on that hopper of food predicted the food for the pigeon that was learning to blow up factories. Um, so, of course, another word that is used in conjunction with, with the clicker is that it's a marker. Has You've heard that used, that the clicker marks behavior, right? So the dog does X, stops at a curve, and you click. Then you have marked it, and then the dog can get a piece of food or some praise or a play or whatever, whatever the dog is reinforcing the dog for that work. Now, here's one you may not have heard. The clicker is technically often referred to as a bridging stimulus a bridging stimulus. And colloquially, that would be called a bridge. 
So that if I saw someone, another trainer, training a species with which I was not familiar. So, for example, I, I ran into a fella, I'm making, I'm making this up, who was training an anteater. All right? And I said, huh, how do you train an anteater? And he said, well, I'm using a bridging stimulus. I said, oh, what do you use as a bridge with an anteater? And he said, well, as it happens, they like clickers. As I would say, okay, good, that works for me. Their ears are such that clickers work very well for them. That's species specific. So if you were to work with dolphins or whales or any other marine mammals, in general, they don't use clickers as markers. They use whistles. Why? Probably because of the acoustic properties of water, the language of dolphins, because they, they talk in clicks all the time, and maybe the, the hearing mechanisms of the, of the dolphins themselves. Now, let me ask you a question. I'm going to give you a minute to ponder this. What if you were working with a deaf dog? So you have a deaf dog. Obviously, a clicker is not going to work as a bridge, okay, or a bridging stimulus or a marker or a condition reinforcer. You can't use a clicker because your dog is deaf. So what you need is you need something that will come on and off really quickly so you can get very precise when the dog does what you want and be very noticeable to the dog that can, so that it can recognize it. The best answer that I've seen uh, used, and I've seen it done, is a flashlight because you can click it on and off really quickly. It's very precise, and a deaf dog obviously can still see it. So, uh, so the clicker is, when we talk about clicker training, we're really talking about marker training, and we're talking about the availability of different kinds of markers for different species. They all have a couple of unique features. One is that they're very salient. That is, they're not like everything else. You know, they, the click doesn't sound like anything else. The flashlight to that deaf dog doesn't sound like anything else. And the whistle for the dolphin trainer certainly doesn't sound like anything else. So uh, the, but why do we call it a bridge? Well, let's imagine what a bridges do in the real world. Okay. Let's, let's take a look at, oh, the San Francisco, the, the, the Golden Gate Bridge or George Washington Bridge or something like that. But also imagine uh, an overpass on a highway where one road crosses over the other and the, 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 uh, the, bridge, the road has to go underneath the bridge. So when you have a bridge, obviously you have something that connects two things, San Francisco to Marin County. New Jersey to New York, the one side of the roadway to the other, over something. In this case, you know, either the, the water under the Golden Gate, the Hudson River, or the highway that's being crossed. Um, so when 
we're talking about clicker training, the click as the click as being the bridge. What are we talking about? Well, let's use New York and New Jersey just because that's my neck of the woods. <laughs> I don't know if you guys could hear that, but it was loud. Oh, we could. <laughs> <laughs> this is exciting. Um, it's been wonderful talking to you, by the way. Uh, the, um, so if you have New York and New Jersey, if, and the click is the bridge in our analogy, what's on one side of the bridge and what is on the other? On one side of the bridge is the behavior. Let's say the behavior is ringing a bell. If the dog rings the bell, we click. What's on the other side? That's the bridge. Not the clicker, by the way. The clicker is not the bridge. The click is the bridge. Or the flashlight, if the dog is deaf. Or the whistle, if it's a whale or a dolphin. Okay? But the click, the marker, is the bridge, okay? So on the one side of the bridge, we have the dog that rings the bell, hears the click, and what does the dog know? The dog knows that on the other side of the bridge, there is a reinforcer or a reward. I hope that makes sense to everyone. So that's why when you talk to a trainer with an anteater, you say, what do you use as a bridge with the anteater? You use something that is salient and, and, and sticks out to the animal and that can be used to connect a behavior to a reward. That connection is really powerful. You know, before the advent of clicker training, there were dolphins, there were captive dolphins, but there were no dolphin shows. Dolphins were to be seen. Maybe they did a nice jump once in a while and got a fish for it, but nothing fancy. Nothing like what you can see now at, at dolphin parks like SeaWorld or any of the other places because they couldn't train the dolphins to do that. You can't very easily put a leash and a collar on a dolphin. Coffin, collars are really hard. If you've ever seen a dolphin, they're really, they're kind of pointy. They fall, everything falls off of them. So you can't put a, a collar on a dolphin, plus they weigh a thousand pounds or more. You can't, you can't like force them into a sit or a down. So to develop the technologies that they use now to train dolphins, that's all operant work. That's all clicker work. And that all comes back to, goes back to Skinner and his pigeons in Minneapolis. Um, so let's take a minute and, and we're, what we're going to do together, and I'm sorry you're silent over there and I'm, I'm hoping that I live through this lightning storm. Um, the let's train a dolphin together and what we're going to do is we're going to take a dolphin all right and we're going to have him in a tank in a really really big tank all right and the dolphin needs a name usually i do this by survey but i surveyed this group in advance and the choice for some reason was vicky so <laughs> the dolphin's name is going to be vicky and what we're going to do is we're going to train Vicky to do one of those big sea world jumps, you know, where the dolphin comes right up out of the water and, and way up high on command. Dolphins do that 
by themselves. They like doing that. It's fun. If, you, if you've ever been on a boat ride, sometimes dolphins will surf along, alongside the boat. They just love doing that. It's fun for them. Uh, but they don't do it when you tell them to. They do it when they want to. Just like dogs can sit and lie down in the wild, but of course they do. But getting them to do it when you, when you want them to is called training. Okay. So we've got our dolphin out there, Vicky, and she's swimming around very happily. We're going to decide to train her. And what we're going to do is we're going to go get ourselves a bucket of bits of fish and a whistle. And we're going to stand on the side of the tank and we're going to blow our whistle. And then we're going to give our dolphin a fish. Whistle a piece of fish, whistle, 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 a piece of fish. We're going to do it the whole bucket full. Whistle fish, 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 a whole bunch of times until we get to the bottom of the bucket. Then we're going to go away and we're going to get more fish and we're going to come back. And Vicky in the meantime has been swimming around the tank restlessly, kind of full, Pretty happy, but just swimming around the tank thinking that was a lot of fun. Don't know what he's up to, but really cool. It was nice while it lasted. And then we appear again. Vicky comes over to us and says, I'd like another fish, please. We say no. Vicky says, what the hell? Give me a fish. No. Give me a fish. No. Okay. So she's a little annoyed, but she swims away. And as she's swimming away at a certain point, she has to come up for air because she's a dolphin, not a fish. When her head comes out of the water, we blow the whistle. Now, we've already built the connection between the whistle and the fish. So when her head comes up out of the water and she hears the whistle, she says, oh, boy, and she zooms back over to the side of the tank, gets a nice chunk of fish, waits around for more, nothing happens. She swims away again after a little while. She's circling around the tank the other way. All of a sudden, she needs a drink of water or a drink of air. So she comes up out of, the, out of the tank. Her head comes up out of the water. We blow the whistle. She zooms back, gets another nice chunk of fish, waits around for a while, goes out, needs to breathe, comes up for a bit of air. We blow the whistle. She comes back in, swims back out. Long about that time, she starts to think to herself, hmm, I think I've noticed a pattern here. Unless I'm mistaken, I believe I've trained this guy to pay me for breathing. How cool is that? And so she decides to experiment and she comes up for air even though she doesn't really need to take a breath at that moment. And sure enough, when her head is up out of the water, <coughs> we blow the whistle, she comes back in for a thing, a bite of fish, goes back out, comes up out of the water a little bit, we blow the whistle, she comes in, gets a bite of fish. She thinks she's playing us. She's getting free food, all she has to do is breathe. How cool is that? But that's not really what's going on because we have a bigger plan. And so once we've got that established, we're going to begin what we call shaping. And what we're going to do is she's going to come up, put her head out of the water. We're not going to do a thing. We're not going to blow the whistle. She goes down again. She says, what just happened? Maybe he didn't see it. She does it again. We don't blow the whistle. She does it again. We don't blow the whistle. She does it again. She's getting mad now. We don't blow the whistle. She does it again. We don't blow the whistle. So then she does a big one and splashes down. We blow the whistle. Oh, 
She comes back in, gets a bit of fish, goes back out, does a bunch of small ones, does a bigger one. We blow the whistle when she's out of the water. She comes back, gets another piece of fish. And soon enough, we're building bigger and bigger jumps until we get what we want, which is that big jump on command. I hope that makes some sense. But let's think about this. What was important there was when we blew the whistle. If we had blown the whistle before she came up out of the water, or if we had blown the whistle after she went down under the water again, we would not have gotten what we did. What was important that we blew the whistle when her head was out of the water, not just so she could hear it, but that was what we wanted. We wanted her up out of the water and then down. So getting back to historical dolphin parts, there were no places where you could, where you could go pay 50 bucks and watch, a, say, watch somebody say dolphin jump and the dolphin would jump out of the water and back. That all came with this technology that, that Bob Bailey and Karen Pryor and those guys evolved to train dolphins. But what's important there, what the clicker buys you, what the marker buys you, what the bridge buys you, is the ability to give a reward after a behavior has happened and have the animal, in this case a dolphin, Vicky, understand what it was getting the reward for, even though it happened 30 seconds ago at the other side of a big tank. So because Vicky heard that whistle when she was out of the water at the other side of the tank, she knew that she was getting a reward for that. You know, what we're working with there in the dog or dolphin mind is a special piece of memory that we all have. That's the piece of memory that is ultra short-term. It's not short-term memory like you said yesterday, I want a hot dog. It's ultra short. It's what works for us so well, when you, you, you leave the house and you go, crap, I forgot my phone. And so you go back in the house, put your key on the table right next to the door, get your phone, come back and put your hand right on those keys that you put there. Now, the next day, you've forgotten the entire incident. Completely forgotten it. All right? It only bothers you when that system fails you. <clears throat> When you come in, put your keys on the table, grab the phone and start checking your pockets, going, what the hell did I do? Where did I put them? You start searching the house. Okay, then you realize, oh yeah, it's back over there by the door where I put them on the table. That ultra short-term memory that is disposable, you, get, you can put something in it and you lose it. You can, it goes away the next day. You have no memory of it whatsoever is what we're working with when we work with the clicker, but it works very, very well. <clears throat> Vicky the dolphin heard the, the whistle at the other side of the tank, recognized what she was doing at the moment she heard that, and swam back and got her piece of fish for that action. <clears throat> that is what we're working with when we use the marker. Without it, you have to, what we would have had to do <coughs> excuse me, was take a fish and try to throw it at Vicky just as she was coming out of the water. With it, we can mark a behavior and reward it afterwards. <laughs> That's at least part of the power of clicker training, okay? Uh, and, and that's kind of how it works. So what's important is 
What's really important is that you click or mark whatever you're using. And many people, although the dogs were trained with the clicker, will start to use a secondary mark that they invent themselves. Uh, I do that. Uh, I don't always have a clicker handy and there may be things that I want to reward or reinforce. My own mark is a kiss sound. Um, and and I'll, I'll use that. Other people use other markers or whatever. But what that, what that, all of that is important is that you've got to click on time. You've got to be spot on. You get what you click. Okay. So if we had, if we had blown the whistle after Vicky went back underwater, wouldn't have gotten a thing. If we had blown the whistle before Vicky came out of the water, wouldn't have gotten what we wanted. We had to blow the whistle when he was out of the water between coming up and going down. Then we got what we wanted. You get what you click. You get what you mark. Okay. So, uh, and that, that's the hardest thing for new people coming at this to understand and to realize is how important the timing of that marking is. Um, and, and I think at that point, I think I'm going to stop now. I don't, don't, and see if there are any questions. I'm wondering like the timing of the, of the clicker. How do you uh, start to teach the dog to target? And then the timing of it, on a day-to-day basis as you're dealing out in the street? Uh, like the clicker with the food. Right, right, right. Well, again, what's important is the click. You've got to get that on time. Right. Much. There's, I think there's a little bit more slop in there than, than the, the experts say, but certainly in the beginning, it's really important. When we, and again, our training is a little bit different than I think many schools are in terms of, we start off with targeting, and the, reason, the way we do it and the way we teach our students to make it accessible for them uh, is we have a bell that the dog is trained to hit. And basically, mm-hmm. when the dog hits the bell, you, you, you click. So, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's useful for, for targeting. So you would hang the bell, for example, on a bus stop pole that you wanted to get to. Mm-hmm. You know? And then you could teach the dog to, to hit that bell. And then when the dog hit the bell, you know you're at the pole and you could give the dog a treat at the pole. And then you right. do it a few times and then get rid of the target. Now, in terms of other behaviors, you know, I'll tell you, I've been doing this for a very, very long time. And the, the first person that, and this is, again, just me, this was so long ago that there weren't clickers available. <laughs> I knew about clickers, but there were no cl- you couldn't get a clicker for hell or high water. Right, right. By the way, I don't know if she's on this call. But my dear friend, Vicki Winslow, is the person who got me started in clicker training uh, 100 million years ago. Is Vicki there? I don't even know. But she deserves a lot of credit. From my perspective, she deserves a ton of credit for, uh, uh, <clears throat> for getting me started in that one Christmas. She gave me two clickers and a little book. <laughs> um, but the, uh, years ago, I, I worked with a fellow who had a dog that was a little bit bulky you know every now it would just sort of stop and so the traditional things that we would do with that of course is take the leash in the right hand and get the dog to move out again a little bit and then praise it and reinforce it and off you go well this fellow had a stroke and he couldn't use his right hand anymore and he still had this bulky dog so anything that you could do with the right hand he couldn't do um but what he could do and again there were no clickers so but 
he used a marker and the marker he we developed between us was the word treat uh, said in a very specific, unique way. And when the dog demonstrated initiative, in other words, if the dog made a sharp move to the left or the right, he would say, treat, stop, reach in with his left hand into his pouch and give the dog a treat. <clears throat> and as long he was able to detect when the dog made a great move, left or right, and he marked that. And sure enough, the dog, you know, he was able to keep that dog in service for a little while. You need something that you can detect. Now, it may be something when the dog stops, if you put your foot out and there's a curb there, you might do that. I don't want it, but it has to be quite precise in terms of, uh, of, of when you do it. It doesn't do you much good if, you, if the dog does something right and you click 10 seconds later. Why? Well, because the dog is doing something else at that moment. Number one, you can two, sec- two seconds, one second, you might be able to get away, but you know, 10, 15 seconds, maybe not. Uh, and that's part of the trick with, with this type of training. Uh, is you need to figure out ways to make the behavior accessible to yourself because you want to get the click in on time. You need to figure out when the behavior is accessible to you. There there are different ways to do it and different techniques that you can use to make certain things accessible. I walk with a support cane and I have the clicker attached to the support cane. So I can click really quickly, but it's getting the food out of the pouch or the pocket that's more time uh, wasting for me. So it may take a few seconds. Does that matter? I mean, no. my dog is so food oriented that she'll wait patiently and say, good. No. No, and now true. that I don't always use clickers and I just have to, you know, tell her good girl and she looks at me and says, oh, well, I guess no food and keeps going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's exactly the, the, the benefit of the clicker, right? Is that once you've done that, you've in effect signed a promissory note. It says you're getting food. And the dog knows that because they have that clicker food connection uh, that we talked about with, with Vicky the dolphin, okay? And once you've clicked, it's kind of like Christmas. Christmas is coming and they're just sitting there waiting for the present. You know, that they, know it's, they know it's coming. That's why the clicker is so, so useful, is it buys you the time to, you, as long as you click on time, bingo, the dog knows the treat is coming. And if it takes you five, 10 seconds to reach in there, 15 seconds, 20 seconds to reach into that pouch to, to get the dog a piece of food, you're fine. My guide dog's eight years old now, and we got her from Leader Dog. And I've asked them about clicker. They don't do, I guess they do clicker training in the training process, but they don't do clicker training in the, um, you know, for the students. What they tell me is that you just use, they just use a keyword that teach the dog, which means yes. Uh-huh. And I assume that clicking, what you're using the clicker training for is to teach him something. Mm-hmm. And that's perfect. That's, that's the only thing it's really for, right? It's to, to train them to do something new. Is well, that correct? That, you know, I'm going to wait for more of your question before I jump into that. Okay. So, so anyway, so I, I just asked them, well, how do you pattern? And they said, um, well, you just use the keyword yes. So they do something, you say yes, and then you give them the food. They do something and they say yes, and you give them the food. Now, my dog, fortunately, is smart, but she almost always patterns herself for almost anything we do. I don't ever have to have a pattern her. And that's but true. If I ever but that's true. To, you know, again, you know, I just want to say, interrupt you for a second to say this. Sure. I think clicker training is the best thing since sliced bread. But there were a dog or two who did this, uh, who guided before there were clickers. Uh, sure. Maybe three dogs. 
maybe you know 70 years of dogs or 85 years of dogs so the clicker you know didn't make training possible the clicker maybe made click made training a little quicker and a little easier on the dogs because you could explain stuff to them uh, but it is, you know, dogs have guided for a hell of a long time. As you know, Paul, your dog wasn't trained with a clicker and that's been out there doing fine for six years, right? Well, so, so why is the clicker so preferred though? There you go. That's, <laughs> so the, like that's, that's a great question. Um, and the, the answer is cause it helps. <laughs> okay. uh, the, you know, the, if you use it well as a trainer or as a, as a handler, it, it helps. And let, let me just point out another thing. One, one of the, the problems that can happen with using food, as I think some of you have found out or know, is that the dog can look for food all the time uh, because they don't know when they're getting it. And uh, Tony, Tony Ames said a, said, a few, said a few minutes ago that her dog would look for, she would say, good dog, and the dog would look for food and they'd say, ah, not today, and be on its way. Uh, well, one of the benefits of using a marker of some type is that the dog knows food is coming and doesn't worry about it the rest of the time. So that's kind of why it's more precise. Uh, okay. than, than, but again, is it necessary? No. And you know that from your own experience because your dog has been working for six years and didn't learn with a clicker, right? And you haven't used one. So would it even be beneficial to me to try to introduce clicker training to her at this point? Yeah. You know, I, I have mixed emotions about that. You know, I, 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 not without a, I would say no, not without somebody giving you some coaching tips because it is fair, it is fairly easy to to screw up. I do know that Leader Dog is using the clicker quite a bit now, uh, okay. and you know when and if you go back for your next dog, I'm sure you'll get more information about it and about how to use food in an ongoing sure. fashion with your next dog. I have to put my recycle crate out every other week or so and when they empty it they might throw it to new jersey so <laughs> the challenge is to find it right and i would like and i think i could teach because rex takes me out to find it anyway teach him to find it but what i don't want to do is teach him to find every crate that's out on the sidewalk along our route so what are the chances if i teach him to find my crate that he'll try to show me every crate that we pass um, are they all identical? Sort of yeah. town issue. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think if you do yours, first of all, there, there are several parts to this. One is you want to put a, the, the behavior on cue. Okay. That's jargon. Um, and it's C-U-E, not the letter Q. Okay. Uh, and on cue means two things. One, that your dog does it when you ask it to. And the second part of that is that it doesn't do it if you don't ask him to. Okay. Okay. So in, in clicker work in general, you get the behavior to happen and you can use your target for that pretty easily, I would think. Right. 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 Uh, and once you've got the dog to go to the crate, okay. And it is reliably so that you can find it. Okay. Then you can begin to add the cue, which might be crate. Okay. So okay. Then, then you would say crate just before you got there and, and, and click and treat when you got there. Then you want to generalize it out and take the crate and move it all over the place to the left, to the right, further away, further away, closer up the driveway, whatever it is. Now, it's not impossible that your dog going out is going to start showing you other crates. And you, you can just say no, hop up, because you haven't given the cue. Okay. Right? So part of the secret to this is getting that behavior not just to happen, but to get to get it to happen when you say so. 
So you might go out the driveway one day and miss, and the crate's not there, or you put the crate out and the dog shows it to you and you say, no, no, up, up, you know, and you go on and then you come back and you do that a few times. And then you come out the driveway and you say crate and the dog goes, oh, I heard my cue word. It goes and hits the crate and you're good. And that's how you train the dog to only do it when you say to do it and not to do it when you don't. I found it really annoying to have to say, find the elevator, find the this, find the that. So now all I do, and I want to ask you if you think this is acceptable, is say, where is it? So when I get near something that the dog has been rewarded for finding before, I just say, where is it? And when they find it, I click. And I found it is a lot more useful and it gets the dog to think. Are you okay with that? Do you think that's acceptable? I do, yes. Dogs don't understand the words find the. They don't understand asparagus or, or even tomato. Uh, they, they make an association. So if your association is with, is with the word, where is the, you know, then, then you're in good shape. I am stressed to find that they don't know anything about asparagus. I don't know, Lucas. We're going to have to have to talk about that. All right. That wraps up our Juno report for this month. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, join us again next month for another exciting episode of the Juno Report. been listening to the Juno Report, brought to you by Guide Dog Users Incorporated, a special interest affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. The Juno Report is a monthly audio magazine featuring all things guide dogs, training programs, and items of general interest to guide dog teams. We welcome your feedback, ideas, and suggestions. Get in touch with the Juno Report by emailing junoreport at guidedogusersinc.org. Again, that email address is Juno, J-U-N-O, report at guidedogusersinc.org. Until next month, this is Deb Cook-Lewis with the Juno Report saying, be good to your dog.